You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. There have been no shortage of free prescription programs around the country, but they're they're typically analog and lack visibility and reliability in terms of the data that those programs are able to collect. What we've been able to expand most is the largest data set and portfolio of research around food prescriptions. You just heard from Josh Troutwine, founder of About Fresh. We'll hear more from him later about the food is medicine movement and how to expand access to fresh produce around the country. I'm Teresa Carey. Before we dive into that, let's take a look at two of Fierce Healthcare's annual special reports on executive salaries. 2022 could not have gone differently for payers and providers. Major health systems struggled with significant financial problems, and those issues are reflected in the executive's pay stubs. And there were pay declines for those in the highest positions at for-profit health systems. Payers, on the other hand, continued to rake in huge profits, and their strong performance translated to pay bumps across the board for CEOs at the six big national companies. Senior editor Paige Minemeyer and staff writer Dave Moyo break down the trends in 2022 CEO pay across both industries. Here they are. Dave, it's great to sit down with you again. No, thanks. You too. I feel like when we connected earlier this year to discuss earnings for, for 2022 for the payers and providers, we ended up with this kind of a tale of two cities narrative, um, kind of the haves and the have nots, if you will. Um, and I think that is something that extends into, you know, the CEO pay trends that we're going to be talking about now. For instance, in your story, you mentioned that there is nary a bonus in sight for top execs, you know, given the financial issues that that these hospitals faced last year. Um, how do you think that compares to 2021? So just as a uh, quick recap of the hospital and financial system or health system financial uh, landscape, 2022 wasn't as wonderful for them just due to, you know, everything that happened last year. We got workforce uh, issues driving up the expenses and sometimes limiting capacity. Uh, we have just inflation and costs rising in general. So a lot of these systems didn't have the year that they probably would have liked to have had. A lot of these bonuses come from incentive plans that generally look to align the executive's goals running the organization with investors' goals. Right. In other words, making a lot of money. These are for profits. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in this turn, not specifically a bonus. You won't see the line item as bonus often populated in these filings, just since a lot of times those are used for one-time sign-on bonuses and the like. Uh, what you see it is non-equity incentive plan compensation is one of the key areas you see it. And in that line, you saw millions of dollars less for uh, all four of these for-profit health systems, their executives, CEOs, and CFOs as well. We looked at that. Um, millions of dollars less along that non-equity incentive plan compensation line item. And a bit lower as well with the uh, stock rewards, which the handoff for those and the plan for handing those out is a little bit, usually takes a couple other factors and timelines into account. Um, right. to ensure that they keep happening over time. So those were also a little bit lower this year. That being said, still millions. I should throw that out. Still millions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's maybe something that might not come across and is, is obvious when we're talking about this in a kind of haves and a have-nots type way, but everyone here is rich. Some are richer <laughs> than others. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, 
you know, and and for this version of the report, we do these every year, pretty much looking at, at annual proxies. Um, you decided to include CFOs this time instead of just focusing on on the CEOs. You know, why did you want to mix in maybe some other executives? Well, specifically CFOs over some of the other roles that these health systems list, because that is among the ones that they uh, disclose in their annual proxy filings. They are the job title that is definitely the most consistent from organization to organization. Other ones break down um, some of the other roles into other components, kind of similar to the CEOs. They were down across the board. Um, Proportionally, maybe about the same amount. Um, and I would say the standout for those I'm just going to throw out, uh, Dan Kinselmi from Tenet Healthcare saw his compensation drop from a little over $9 million last year to just under $4 million this year. As you were compiling this, uh, was any of the data kind of surprising to you or did you come across anything that you weren't expecting to find? I don't know if surprise is the right word. And I don't know if the fun item to look at is the right word, but other compensation is always something that I like to poke my head into because that's where you see a little bit of a use of the company jet. Uh, in a rare case, uh, we see paid for an executive's membership at a country club. Yeah. Um, I would, I, to me, those seem to be uh, less this year. I think in past years when we've done this, there was more opportunities to point at you know, like I said, the use of the executive jet or some of the more interesting uh, private car or pay for an automobile transportation. I It seems like there was a bit less of that this year. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the CEO pay ratio, and I I love that figure. I love to, to pull that every time I do this report. <laughs> um, I, I think when you look at the health plans, it can be kind of interesting how that pay ratio shakes out given the differences in, in the the business models of these different companies. Like if you look at CVS, they obviously have a huge retail component and a lot of people working in their pharmacies as, you know, cashiers and things like that. So their CEO pay ratio is 380 to one, which is pretty big. <laughs> but if you look at, you know, Humana, which is more of a, you know, pure, uh, payer organization along with, you know, primary care providers and things like that, their pay ratio is 238 to one. So it's kind of interesting to look at that and kind of see what that tells you about the difference in, in how the company operates and their focuses for sure. It's interesting that you throw out those two numbers because the highest of my list of four, for-profit health system CEOs, uh, CEO to median worker pay ratio, the highest one was Sam Hazen at 254 to one. The lowest was 97 to 1 for uh, Tim Hinchkin at Community Health Systems. Um, and like I was saying before, with some of the nonprofits, depending on the hospital, there's been analyses that show that that could be like as little as 2 to 1. Just, you know, again, smaller scale organizations. And I would suggest, I would anticipate that uh, even the lower compensated hospital employees are a bit higher than the retail CVS's uh, employees. Yeah, Frontline. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just a little, little bit different that when you're looking at that comparison, but uh, I would say it sounds like those payer ones are a bit higher than what we see in the health system side for sure. Yeah. And that's probably a good segue to talking about them because I think, again, the takeaway is 
they made more money than the <laughs> the for-profit hospital CEOs. Um, our top this year was, you know, CVS's CEO, Karen Lynch, who made uh, $21.3 million in total compensation. Again, I would couch that in kind of, you know, as Dave mentioned earlier, these executives, most of their take-home pay is not really in that. It's that's all stock and option awards and then that incentive plan compensation that, that you get, you know, Karen Lynch, for instance, here has $12.4 million in stock awards for 2022. So that's, you know, more than half of her total compensation. Her salary is about 1.5 million. So, you know, I think that's important to note, but it is interesting to see the disparities between kind of these sectors of the industry carry over even this, even to this topic. Um, and I think this is a, a long-term thing as well. I mean, obviously this, the financial issues that hospitals have been facing date back to the pandemic. They've been, you know, kind of taking a hit after a hit for several years now. And health insurers really were built much better to to deal with the challenges that, that COVID presented. Um, and obviously they're growing profits over the past several years and they're top executives earning more reflects reflects those trends i did yeah i did want to ask um how different are these numbers actually compared to pre-pandemic was because as you said uh payers in some ways benefited from the pandemic to me yeah. uh, as you saw electives and stuff drop off there they had to pay out less claims so how has the executive pay changed pre and post pandemic yeah, I think the the trends are actually pretty consistent if you're looking at pre and post COVID. Um, the first time I did a report like this was in 2019, and I based it on obviously data from the year before. And the average compensation, total compensation there for the executives we included, was about 18 million. So that's lower than what we're seeing now, but it's still pretty close. Um, I think it's, <laughs> and they've only gone up from there, not down. So, um. One thing I think is interesting is if you look specifically at at some of them, um, Elevance Health CEO Gail Boudreaux, Elevance Health was formerly Anthem. She's been a pretty steady climber on our list as as the company has continued to grow. So in 2018, she earned about 13 million in total compensation, and in 2022, she was in the middle of our list at 20.9 million. So you know that kind of aligns with the the trend of these health insurance companies continuing to get bigger, kind of sprawling, and, and their CEOs are now earning pay to, to match the, the growing size of the company. On the uh, subject of size, uh, you've mentioned some of the biggest ones. You've mentioned growth. Uh, there are definitely not all payers are the same scale here. Um, right. Did you see any clear differences in executive compensation by scale this year? Yes and no. I think um, the two top companies that we cover, not just on the payer team, but for the entire entirety of your healthcare, our CVS and United Health Group, they're two Fortune five companies. In 2022, CVS was number four, UHG was five. So they're not just the largest companies that I cover; they're some of the largest companies in the world. So, given that they're at that level of size, it's not really surprising to see, you know, Lynch at the top, um, Andrew Witte is at who's the CEO of UHG is at number four. He made uh, 20.9 million last year, but he's clustered pretty closely together with, you know, Boudreaux made nine, 20.9 million and 
uh, David Cordani made at uh, Cigna made almost 21 million. So they're all pretty close together. Um, and all four of these companies have really been focused on getting bigger. So I think that is, is a trend to watch is just as these companies continue to really bulk up, um, will we keep seeing kind of these, the CEO pay grow? I guess we should mention, uh, you just noted Lynch and Woody. They're both relative newcomers to the roles, right? This isn't a, uh, isn't specifically a tenured position, lots of pay yeah. type situation, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This was 2022 is the first full year in the, the role for both of them. They, they both took the CEO chair in 2021. Got it. Interesting. So, uh, your report that, um, everyone can see online doesn't <laughs> specifically touch on the insure text, but, uh, they're in the spotlight lately, just with everything that they have going on. Uh, do you have any insight into what they're paying their executives during a very turbulent time? Yeah. What's interesting, I think, is that the, as you mentioned, the, this is a very volatile market. Um, all of these companies went public within a really close amount of time together in 2021. I know we've talked about this topic on on Podnosis before. Um, about kind of how <laughs> the insure tech market is really, really kind of complicated and interesting. But if you were to take our report and include them, um, the top executive for total compensation would have been Alignment Healthcare CEO John Cow, which is really interesting, I think. Um, based on his total compensation package, he earned uh, $34.1 million last year, which is, if you compare that to the CEO of CVS, like that's 14 million above. That's pretty wild. Um, mm. uh, in fairness to Cal, uh, the bulk of that is in stock awards, which was about 30.9 million. Um, however, again, it's a pretty staggering number to look at when you're thinking about just the, the volatility of this space and, you know, how it's a little bit of a, a wild west for these insure techs. Um, Otherwise, they they had pretty average payouts. I think for the others, they all made a ton of money in you know in stock and option awards in 2021 when they went public. You know, uh, the CEO, former CEO of Oscar, Mario Schlosser, for instance, earned about 60 million in stock and option awards in uh, 2021 for the company going public. But his total compensation for 2022 was only about 652 thousand. So, you know, that's kind of the trade-off that some of these executives are making. But, you know, it is kind of interesting to see that trend of, you know, the 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 IPO hits and this these salary numbers are kind of eye-popping and then, you know, then they kind of settle a little bit. That's interesting to hear, Paige. And like you said, we'll definitely have to keep an eye out for uh who's around, who's not around, and if for there sure. are even CEOs to get money next year <laughs> on that side of the sector. But uh I Personally, I kind of expect uh, for our core health systems and payers, I don't see very significant jumps going on next year, I would say. Yeah, I think if anything else for the, at least on the health plan side, it would be kind of stay the course. Um, you know, I, historically, our top earner for me has been um, late CEO of, of Centene, Michael Nydorf, and he made about $25 million, but he was heavily tenured. So we'll have to see if some of these newcomers can can measure up to that so something to watch for our listeners awesome well thanks 
uh, thanks page for showing us a bit of the other side of the fence for me specifically <laughs> as the health system guy. And uh, definitely thanks for jumping in chat. Yeah, same to you. Okay, so every week as I produce Podnosis and The Top Line, which is our Friday podcast, I ask the Fierce Newsrooms if there are any announcements they want me to share. And Annalie Armstrong told me today to let you all know that Friday is World Dracula Day. (laughs) So in honor of World Dracula Day, here's a friendly reminder from The Top Line to donate blood. No, but really, my announcement today is about the Fierce 15, Each year, we honor the best and the brightest in biotech, and nominations are open now. And this year, we are looking for the companies that are pushing boundaries, not only in the clinic, but in the C-suite and beyond. We want to know how you're fiercely redefining expectations culturally, ethically, and in your pipelines. So go to FierceBiotech.com to find out more and submit your nomination. Look for the Fierce 15. Let medicine be thy food, and let food be thy medicine. That was Hippocrates, an ancient Greek physician in 400 BC. He told people to treat disease first by eating nutrient-dense food. Seems pretty obvious, right? Well, that idea is finally starting to catch on in the healthcare industry. It's called the Food is Medicine Movement. It links nutrition to chronic illness like diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. And it has been growing in popularity recently. Last year, it gained backing from the Biden administration. And in September, the White House convened the first conference on hunger, nutrition, and health in half a century. But there are challenges, like the lack of insurance coverage and access to fresh produce. So at the conference, the Rockefeller Foundation announced its Food as Medicine Research Initiative, which is backed by $250 million in funding. The initiative is supposed to empower partners to generate evidence for food as medicine programs. And one of those programs is a large-scale demonstration project. It is a joint project between the Department of Veteran Affairs and the nonprofit About Fresh. And we have the founder of About Fresh on the show today. That's Josh Troutwin. He founded About Fresh initially out of a school bus turned into a produce market to bring fresh produce to food deserts around Boston. And from those humble beginnings, About Fresh now uses a digital platform called Fresh Connect to expand access to fresh produce around the country. Troutwine spoke with our reporter, Annie Berkey, about his work and about food as medicine in general. Here they are. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Hey, Annie. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, I think a good place to start um, is just asking you if you can give me a rundown of About Fresh's evolution from school buses to the new partnership with the VA. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a long arc over 10 years. We started off as a really grassroots organization operating a mobile market called Fresh Truck, which we still operate today, turning school buses into grocery stores uh, to really solve for proximity as a barrier towards healthy eating for low-income folks. In Boston, um, you know, and then combine that with a lot of community organizing around food justice and then a lot of events and programs just just celebrating food culture, organizing communities around the beautifully diverse food culture in Boston, you know, and then out of that work over the first couple of years, really came to appreciate the degree to which like purchasing power and affordability were a barrier toward healthy eating. And so 
we co-developed a paper-based food prescription program with our, our community health center partners where uh, they would literally just give out coupons that said like 10 bucks mm. for their patients to be able to go shopping at our mobile markets at, at Fresh Truck. And it worked out great. It was a really, really easy way for our community health center partners to you know, address food insecurity at the point of care, put healthy food into reach, solve for affordability as a barrier toward healthy eating. We started to think about how we could scale that program, not only across our Fresh Truck mobile market sites, but even more broadly. You know, We had big dreams of expanding to a national network of retailers, which is what brings us to today. You know, Fresh, Fresh Connect from that, that paper coupon has now become a technology-enabled food prescription uh, built on a, a debit card platform using some of the same payment rails as EBT, integrated as a payment method across a national network of more than 10,000 retailers, Walmart, Kroger, Albertsons, Stop and Shop and Giant on the East Coast. And, uh, you know, and we have a national network of healthcare partners, including the VA, who are using Fresh Connect to treat food insecurity. A lot of work behind it, um, but it's a really intuitive uh, relatively like straightforward shopping experience using Fresh Connect, just a little bit more money in the bank for for healthy food. Yeah, I think your evolution is really interesting because um, it does start from that grass, grassroots space. I mean, incredibly so. Like I've seen photos of the buses um, <laughs> and I've heard other people who have visited the buses talk about them and talk about the community feel. Um, and I, I think that's where food begins. Food begins yep. in the home. Food begins with family. Absolutely. Food has also, like, food stamps have been a part of our nation's support system for a long time. SNAP benefits still exist. But it hasn't really existed in relation to healthcare. And so that's, that's you know, the big old question right now. And so I wonder, like, if you can talk about how About Fresh's evolution reflects the overall evolution of food as medicine as a whole. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You know, my background prior to starting About Fresh was at a community health center, world-class mm -hmm. community health center. I was at a Mass General Brigham Health Center, and we had no answer for the fact that grocery stores weren't uh, close by to the low-income community of patients that we were we were serving. And we had very little recourse to treat food insecurity at all within a clinical setting beyond just like a referral to uh, a food pantry. And part of that, I think, comes down to sort of the limitations of healthcare payment models at that time, really limiting the available funding uh, to incorporate food into healthcare. And we've seen that change, I think, over the course of the last decade and certainly accelerate over the course of the last, you know, three, four years with the emergence of value-based care. Um, that is now making it possible for healthcare systems to actually cover the cost of food for patients. Um, to address the downstream impacts of food insecurity on, on health outcomes and avoidable utilization and total cost of care. So I just think that macro context and the emergence of value-based care has created um, a really rich opportunity for us to take those grassroots programs that have been innovated over decades and really mm -hmm. embed them into healthcare delivery at scale. And that was our original vision. So um, yeah, it has been a really nice one-to-one -one sort of beautiful evolution of about fresh um, and the healthcare system, which is you know really exciting for us as we continue to pursue that that vision of food being deeply integrated into healthcare. Yeah, and in, in healthcare, there's for quite some time now been an understanding um, of the 
magnitude of diet-related diseases, especially in this country, Um, but widespread debate on how food fits into that process. Like when, when does healthcare start? At what point in the life journey? At what point in a person's day? Is it just when you're at the doctor? Is it just when you're at the pharmacy? Or is it all day long? And at least what I've heard from healthcare organizations is that before there's wide scale buy-in, they want to know disease, dosage, duration. Um, what are the challenges in acquiring data to answer those questions? And how does the new partnership with the VA seek to provide the right data? Yeah, that is a good question and um, a good a good series of questions and a series of questions that we are attempting to answer. I mean, first, just picking up on the idea of like, what is healthcare? We know Mm -hmm. more than 80% of our health outcomes are um, attributed to, you know, social drivers of health, whether or not we have Mm -hmm. access to food, whether or not we have, you know, safe housing, um, whether or not we have jobs, you know, all of those things are uh, really critical drivers of health that are 80% determinants of our, our health outcomes. So just wanted to name that, I guess, from the outset. But within um, this new emerging context of value-based care, you're not wrong, right? It is imperative that if we want to sustain all of this momentum and interest and investment into food as medicine, we need to generate the economic case for why healthcare should continue to invest in food as medicine. We also need to establish the implementation science and the deep granular insights to understand under what conditions a $1 investment and food has impact. And for us, that really comes down to, um, as you said, defining that dose response curve, respective Mm -hmm. of the, you know, demographic profile of not only the people that we're serving, but entire households. And so we've built the Fresh Connect web application that facilitates program management in a way where we're able to generate a lot of, um, in our case, shopper level insights. We're able to get back the transaction data from Fresh Connect purchases, and then tie that to electronic health records and other third-party data sets to really understand the relationship between an investment in Fresh Connect and then health outcomes over time. But, you know, as we've sort of just said here, there are so many mitigating variables. It must be sort of, uh, we must stand up. It's imperative that we stand up large-scale demonstration pilots and look over, you know, a time horizon of five plus years, you know, like we know that diet related health conditions are oftentimes built up over a decade. They're not going to go away in six months, a year, even like two years. Uh, so we really want to push the healthcare system to think about that time horizon for a return on investment in food as medicine. Yeah. I spoke with a um, vice president of mission for Boston medical center, Thea James. Yeah. Yes. Uh, she spoke at the White House conference um, about the hospital's prescriptive food program and its partnership with About Fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is just such a powerhouse in it, um, really preaching the gospel of food as medicine on all levels. Um, and I wonder if you can talk about the structure of that program with Boston Medical Center and just like bringing Fresh Connect to health organizations in general. Yeah, sure. So um, the work that we started with BMC that we'll hopefully be wrapping up this summer is a, you know, a comparative control trial working with um, a team of researchers uh, at Boston Medical Center to look at the impact of Fresh Connect over a period of about three years on oh, wow. health, food security status and health outcomes over time. 
So that was really, you know, it was a great opportunity for us to really just like cut our teeth in academic research, to establish sort of that early implementation science around what does it take to enroll somebody into the program, for someone to activate mm-hmm. their card, and then mm-hmm. to sort of inspire and motivate someone to go shopping and actually use the funds that are on their Fresh Connect card every month. And BMC has been a great, great partner with us in that. And we're, we're excited to publish those results. Hopefully later on this summer, you know, our chief program officer, Adam Shayevich, um, has a learning agenda that is really grounded in what we have come to appreciate are a lot of gaps and also opportunities to expand the existing body of evidence around the efficacy of food prescription mm. programs. I think a limitation up to this point has been the absence of technology. There have been no mm. shortage of food prescription programs around the country, but they're they're typically analog and lack visibility and reliability in terms mm. of the data. Uh, that those programs are able to collect. What we've been able to sort of stand up and expand most recently with the VA is um, sort of the largest data set and portfolio of research around food prescriptions, right? Like every Mm -hmm. single one of our partners around the country are using the Fresh Connect web application to facilitate the enrollment process and then to facilitate the collection and analysis of data. And so we're able to aggregate um, data from various different food prescription programs across the country, the VA, BMC, all of our ACO partners around Massachusetts, the national network of community-based organizations we live with, all that data lives in the Fresh Connect platform. All of that mm-hmm. data can then be related to you know, medical records, claims data, um, any other third-party research platforms. And so we are, I think, just starting to sort of explore the potential of like what it means to actually um, study really reliable data on that type of large scale. Um, and really hopefully expanding the portfolio of really rigorous academic research. So we've talked about this before, and I, it really relates back to the question of trust. How do you ensure that food as medicine programs don't become Trojan horses for enforcing cultural assimilation? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, um, you know, as, I, as I've mentioned, just by virtue of the fact that we've been so steeped in the food justice movement for 10 years, we think about this question a lot. Right, like one of the most critical guideposts for um, the design and how we continue to implement Fresh Connect has been sort of joy around the cultural experience of shopping and eating. And what I love about Fresh Connect is that we bring to bear the entirety of the food system in terms of how it is our cardholders can access food. I think historically, Mm -hmm. I'd say the, the other reality alongside of that design principle of cultural connection has to be that healthcare investment into food as medicine is aligned with patient healthcare goals, right? Mm -hmm. So the reality is that like healthcare, if we are going to sustain healthcare investment into food as medicine, there needs to be an ROI. That's just, that's true. Or like Mm -hmm. we are not going to get healthcare to invest. So um, in some ways, like we have to name that there are always going to be limitations and parameters around that healthcare investment. So the question becomes, how do we make that investment as expansive as possible within those mm-hmm. parameters. And so what I love about Fresh Connect is that, you know, traditional models of hunger relief have um, had to resort based on, you know, the limitations of supply chain infrastructure and just in other innovative solutions technology have had to resort to limiting inventory to just a pre- prescribed set of like, you know, either pre-boxed food or whatever food can be donated. Yeah. Um, there are always been those just like limitations built up within traditional models of hunger relief. With Fresh Connect, we bring to bear like, 30,000 square foot grocery retailers with millions of SKUs and farmer's markets and corner stores. 
right? Like all different ways for folks to access food. And the parameters that are programmed to a fresh connect card aligned with patient healthcare goals, we're still talking about tens of thousands of just different items. Like if we're talking about fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. you can go into your grocery store and you can shop for any right now with your fresh connect card and shop for any fruit and vegetable, right? Like within that store, which means that you do have access to your cultural staples. So are we going to get healthcare to invest in everything that might be culturally aligned and within our eating preference? No, but those parameters absolutely do encompass like a really, really, really wide range of culturally aligned foods for um, regardless of which cardholder we are serving because we are operating on the full strength of our food system. And, you know, that retail network and those food system partnerships are, are only growing. So we're really excited that, you know, that by virtue of that, the, um, the cultural diversity of the foods that we can offer will grow like in line with that expansion of our, our retail network and our food system partnerships as well. So, um, and I think too, that, I think that's a broader mandate for the food is medicine movement overall. How do mm-hmm. we use existing food system infrastructure, existing retailers, e-commerce platforms, bodegas, and farmers markets, places where people already get their food, people already love going shopping, mm-hmm. um, that are steeped in community. How do we use those as access points for folks to deliver on, you know, a culturally aligned and an ultimately joyful experience? Yeah. So this, I think this is the next logical question. Like we just need mm-hmm. wealth in people's pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the food problem too, was that food recommendations contradict food subsidies. Healthy food is expensive, like processed food that is made from like corn, soy, wheat, which are all subsidized. Do you agree? No, absolutely. We dream of a future state where Fresh Connect does not have to exist, right? Like Fresh Connect only exists as a result of income inequality. Um, So do we need to address the right now needs of folks that are struggling to access the foods that they need to be healthy? Absolutely. And we do that through Fresh Connect. But I would agree with the sentiment that we need to address the other macroeconomic factors and policy considerations that create those conditions in the first place. Well, I'm going to ask you one last question that I I think you have answered already, but I I think it's a good point to bring up. Um, We have seen value-based care models solidify from a pipe dream to CMS reimbursement codes. Do you think that bodes well for the future of food as medicine? Yeah, of course. Of course it does. Like we know that, you know, food is a... um, you know, contributes to, you know, $180 billion plus of um, adverse and avoidable healthcare costs every single year. Uh, So there's definitely an economic case within value-based care for why food like needs to be a very meaningful part of containing those avoidable costs. And, you know, our passion is um, in people in food security and all the joy that comes along with having access to the foods that you need to be not only healthy, but also happy and hopeful and connected to your community and to your loved ones. And so I, uh, you know, we, our whole premise is that value-based care is um, a wonderful, represents a wonderful opportunity to recruit the healthcare system in a vision of that future state of health for sure. But Mm -hmm. all of those other beautiful aspects of what it means when food is in reach for people. So um, super excited about the emergence of value-based care and doing everything we possibly can to sustain and advance that payment innovation, and then more specifically, healthcare investment into food as medicine. Brilliant. Well, Josh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Annie. It's great to talk with you. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find more news and stories at fiercehealthcare.com. 
next week, we're going to discuss why artificial intelligence will be game-changing for healthcare. And we'll also talk about gender-affirming care for the LGBTQ community. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat. <laughs>